love God, but it doesn't say all things are good. And so we don't always, uh, another wording when Carrie Sinus passed away, his wife shared a devotional uh, about, uh, you may remember the wording that we, we um, the, the word of God only takes us so far in being able to exegete our lives. Uh, in other words, sometimes God will confuse us because we know he's a good God, right? I mean, that's revealed in the scripture. But sometimes <clears throat> what he allows into our life doesn't seem good and, and maybe isn't good at the moment. And we, we wrestle, with, you know, God, if you're good, how are you allowing this to happen into my life? And Israel or Judah could say the very same thing. They're going through life. They were God's chosen people um, as a nation. You and I are God's chosen people through Christ, through salvation in Christ. But God had a plan for Israel and his relationship with them, the fact that they were in a covenant relationship, changed everything in how the God of heaven deals with his creation. And if you're a born-again child of God, uh, God deals with you differently than he deals with just everyday common folk. Because you, uh, you profess Christianity, you name the name of Christ. And again, I mentioned Hebrews 12. I don't think we've turned there physically yet, but we'll be there sometimes through Jeremiah because it really is uh, God's chastening. That's what's happening to Judah, uh, Israel. God is chastening them. But as we look tonight, let's just look at this. So the title of the message tonight, this text from verses 11 through 18 in chapter 4, is simply, Through God's Hands. And again, nothing happens into our lives, nothing comes into our lives, that doesn't first pass through God's hands. We're going to look at that. We're going to see that here in the life of Israel. So, three things. Um, tonight, what we're going to look at is uh, verses 11 and 12. There is a change in the weather. At least we read the verses and that's what it sounds like. It's just, just talking about a, a wind blowing in and it's going to be a really strong wind. And, you know, it, it sounds like simply maybe, oh, Jeremiah is a weather forecaster. Uh, because there's there's going to be a change in weather. Well, then he merges it in the next few verses and tells us what he's talking about. Uh, this change in wind, this storm that is coming in, is actually God's chastening. And it's actually in the form of, of a, a, a conquering nation, Babylon, though he's not mentioned that by name yet. But he's got it all laid out. He, they, they are provoking God to be punished because they are rebellious, a rebellious wife. We've looked at that, that picture, and now God is saying, okay, the storm is coming. And then in, in, the, ne- in the next few verses, he identifies that storm. And it's a military army that is coming, chariots and all. And so the, the change of weather... And then we're going to see in verses 13 through 17, as he identifies uh, that, you know what, it's going to seem like a drastic change in weather, you know, like, like just kind of a random thing, but this whole thing is orchestrated by God. And, and it reminds us, and I want to again remind you through this whole message, nothing is going to happen in your life that isn't orchestrated by God. And if you are a believer, if you profess Christ, you name the name of Christ in a very special way, you are his child. And you may not think that your 
relationship with the Lord, whether you're close to Him or far from Him, uh, really plays out in your day-to-day events. We tend to, sometimes Christians tend to compartmentalize. You know, okay, I might, you know, go to church on Sunday and maybe I'll do some time in prayer and, you know, a little bit of time that I give to God and then the, the rest of my life. But as believers, folks, that all merges. And God is now involved in your life. And so Israel, the the Jews, couldn't just do what they wanted to do because they were doing that. They were enticed by the the gods of the Canaanites and, and all the different pagan gods. And they thought, you know, we can get involved in this and still kind of, you know, um, Judaize it, you know, like today would be Christianize it, make it, you know, make it Christian by adding God in there, but still basically not following God's ways. And that's exactly what happened. So we have the change of weather, verses 11 through 12, verses 13 through 17, the fact that it's orchestrated by God. And then verse 18, at the end of the verse, uh, it is brought on by their disobedience. So we see that, number one, God is in charge of their life and our life. We're going to see that sometimes things will change in our lives. And we always have to be sensitive to, all right, Lord, what are you doing in my life? Now, it's not always punishment. Understand that. Now, if you're you're a child of God and you're not walking with him, he will lovingly chasten you. And so some things can be chastening, and we have to be aware of that. But then there's examples like Job where he's just testing them and and trying to grow them. And and so no matter what's going on in your life, you have to acknowledge, Lord, you have allowed this and you've allowed it for a reason. Ron Hamilton, when he lost his eye to cancer, he wrote the song, God never moves without purpose or plan when trying his servant and molding a man. And that's what God is doing with every one of us. So let's just jump in. And uh, first, let's see the change of weather. Verse 11. At that time shall it be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the high places in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people. So there's coming a storm. In fact, you may remember earlier in Jeremiah, uh, he had several visions, oracles. One of them was a pot of of hot boiling water that was pouring out from the north. Uh, This is... The same judgment, the same punishment, or the same chastening, different picture. It's, it's a change in weather. And it will be, notice, a dry wind of the high places in the wilderness. And we know it would come from the north, which would be Babylon, toward the daughter of my people, specifically Judah. And now notice this last two phrases, not to fan, nor to cleanse. What, what's that mean? Remember, he's talking to pretty much farmers here. He's talking to an agricultural people who lived off the land. And they, you know, every single year, the way they cultivated and produced, you know, the, the way they had their crops and then the way they would uh, winnow it, they, they had part of getting their food uh, was when their, their harvest, the grain uh, was being processed. They would have this one point during it. They did it every year where they would have to fan the grain. And you remember what the purpose for that was? To separate the chaff from the grain. And so they would, they would have some kind of wind or some kind of blowing, so the chaff would go away, and only what would be left was the grain. And so this phrase, or these two words, not to fan, 
nor to cleanse. In other words, this wind is coming in and it's not like, you know, when you're harvesting your, your, your grain and you want to get rid of the chaff and you want to leap, keep the grain. This, this is such a strong wind, it's going to blow everything away. This is going to affect, in other words, this is going to affect, this isn't just your daily, you know, maybe the way God is working in your life. This, this is a form of chastisement that is going to affect the innocent and the guilty. Everyone's going to be affected by this. Verse 12, even a full wind from whose places shall come unto me. Now also will I give sentence against them. So there's this weaving of the picture of a change in weather. And by the way, weather can change quickly, just like our life circumstances can change quickly. And if you and I just think life is random happening and and happenstance, uh, you and I are... We are going to be so confused, so filled with anxiety. But when you and I know that an omnipotent God, again, with His hands, is controlling what's going on in our life. So what seems random is actually of divine design. We had weather just within, I believe, just within the last week. Was the flash floods? Is that Montgomery County? Am I right? Five people died. And, and you, you, this has gripped me. Uh, I've heard this on the news several times. The little toddler and the little infant. And um, it was a parent, uh, it was a family. Of, am I right? They came from like South Carolina. I think they were visiting. And all of a sudden, they, they it, you know, it wasn't like, sometimes we have flash floods here. You ever been on some of the roads where the flooding is it's getting a little deep and there's cars that are like, should I go through? Should I not go through? And then sometimes they go through. This wasn't like that. These people weren't even approaching a flood. It just came upon them. And, and five people died. And, and a toddler, a precious toddler, was swept away. A baby infant was swept away. They found the toddler, just the last I heard. The infant is still missing. And the toddler was found 30 miles from where they first swept away. Just like that. Uh, I, I, I've been gripped by that. You know, my heart wrenches for these precious little kids and the parents, the, the family. I think the dad, I think the mom may have died, but, but what a tragedy. And if this was just, you know, random happenstance, because weather seems like that sometimes, doesn't it? Weather seems to be random. You know, who knows? We get the weather forecast and things can change overnight. Hey, that's our life. That is our life. You can, have a, you can be living in a calm sea right now. In fact, the, the scriptures and the, the hymn writers over the ages and the psalmists have used the idea of being at sea as a ship and the, the waves and the, the, the weather uh, is like our lives. And you and I have to realize that God is in charge of that. So he just starts off with a simple illustration. Hey, there's a storm coming. It's going to come strong. And it's, it's not going to be just your typical you know, wind that's, that's going to blow. This is going to be intense. And then all of a sudden, he merges it into military. And he, and he identifies what this storm is going to be. And it's an army that he's got lined up. He's getting ready to chasten his people. Now, in a few minutes, he's going to, once again, Jeremiah, the, the weeping prophet... 
in the midst of proclaiming the judgment. And by the way, the verbs that are used here in this text are participles, and it's written as if this is already beginning to take place. The, the things are in motion now, and here it comes. The wind is coming, the chariots. He's going to go on and explain this uh, in verses 13 and, and following. And he, but then he stops. I think it's verse 14. We'll look at this in a minute. And he issues one more challenge for them to repent. Now, I want to back up for a minute, and I want to remind you with scriptural support that God is involved in every area of our life. And I want to give you as an example, Job. And, and I, you don't need to turn there. But in the events of Job's life, you know, Job was a God-fearing man. Job walked with God. And he, offered, he did everything that was required. He just had a relationship with God, had a family, and talk about changing weather. In one day, Job's life was turned upside down. And he had no idea why. He knew. He knew that God had something to do with it. And he wasn't sure because he, was, he knew that God was, so, it was a good God. And he knew that he worshipped God. He knew he wasn't perfect. But he could not understand. God, if you're a good God, how are you allowing this to happen to me? And what we get in Job, it's a long book. But in the first two chapters... We see something we don't see a lot. We never see it in our lives. The curtain is pulled away, and we see what's going on behind the scenes. Remember Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, powers spiritual wickedness. You know, In other words, there's things going on behind the scenes every moment of every day that you, don't, you and I don't even know. Who, there are things happening in the spiritual world that are affecting our lives. Satan and his fiery darts. But in the book of Job, it's, it's peeled back for a minute and we get to see what's going on. And, and amazingly, we see Satan having access to the throne of God and actually having a conversation with God. And talking about people. By the way, Satan, Satan isn't in hell, you know, in control of his minions and ordering his kingdom with all the demonic angels uh, and, and leaving the world alone. Satan is very involved in the lives of flesh and blood, you and me. Peter says this, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about here in this world. Walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And that wasn't just happening in the time of Job. It's happening now. But we see the specifics in Job. Sure enough, Satan was going around to and fro. And then he went up to heaven. And, uh, and God says, you know, where are you? Where where you been? This is my paraphrase, and uh, which is not available at the stores. So take take note of it now. Uh, and 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 Job or Satan says, "I've just been running to and fro, you know, basically doing what I do." And God says, "Have you considered my servant Job?" And then so all of a sudden, God's the one that brings Job up, and um, and this conversation begins, and Satan. 
complains. Yeah, I, it's like Satan says, yeah, I've considered Job. I probably would have attacked him long ago. And he says in Job 1 and verse 10, Satan says to God, Hast thou not made an hedge about him and about his house and about all that he hath on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. In other words, Satan is saying, God, you haven't let me touch him. You got this protective hedge about him. Don't forget that. Don't forget that. Satan is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but he doesn't have free reign in our lives to do what he wants because God is the one that calls the shots. Nothing will come into my life that doesn't pass first through the hands of God. And it's a perfect example. Now, you know, if you know Job, things are going to get rough. Things get very rough, but not until God has given the stamp of approval with limits. So verse 12, the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord with a mission to attack Job. Now that God lifted that hedge. And then in verse 16, the Bible says, uh, Now of Job's life, while he was speaking, there came also another and said, The fire of God is fallen from heaven and hath burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I only am escaped alone to tell thee. So now Satan is beginning to attack and destroy Job's possessions within boundaries. But notice he says, the fire of God. See, weather, even the weather is in God's control. Now, in this case, we know that this was an attack from Satan. But again, nothing passes into our life that doesn't go through the hands of God first. And God never moves, never does anything randomly without purpose. He's not just saying, ah, whatever you want, I'll get back to you a little bit, see how he's doing. No, God has still got the reins in our life on what Satan can and cannot do. And if, if, if you think God is like going away and, then, and somehow Satan got loose in your life, there's a reason for it. God's doing something. And we've got to remember that. I'm reminded of Paul, who was Saul, before he became Paul, the apostle in the New Testament. And uh, Saul's conversion testimony is found three times in the book of Acts. One of those is Acts chapter 9. Many of you know that Paul was a zealous Pharisee. Saul, rather, was a zealous Pharisee, a religious leader, uh, a Jew of Jews, following the letter, the law to the letter of the, you know, just, just he was very zealous for the Lord and, uh, and he was persecuting the church. And thinking, he, he was one of those that was thinking he did God's service. You know, punishing these Christians in my zeal for God, I'm making God happy. And then the Lord entered his life and said, and, and communicated with him. And so Paul, in his, in his communication with Jesus, the Lord, in Acts chapter 9 and verse 5, and he said, Who art thou, Lord? So he's got this voice speaking to him. And he's like, Who are you? And he, and he says, And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou 
persecutest. Paul did not think, Paul is, is persecuting Christians. He didn't think he was persecuting God. And then, and then Jesus said this, It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, or a goat, like they, they used to keep the animals in line. And that's the picture here, is that God was the one that was goading Saul, trying to get his attention. And Saul was kicking against that. Saul was resisting what God was doing, uh, thereby persecuting Jesus. Now, we know the story that Saul would eventually surrender. But you know what? Judah, Israel, the Jews, were kicking against the pricks. God was trying to get their attention and get them in line and sending Jeremiah and so many other prophets and trying to get their attention. And now the weather's going to change. And that weather is going to be the chastening hand of God. Look at verse 13. Verses 13 through 17, we see that all these events that will transpire are orchestrated by God. Verse 13. Behold, He... First time... Now remember, we're talking just about a storm. The winds are going to come. You know, we're just... We're thinking, okay, this is... It's going to be really windy, and it's not going to be like the regular kind that blows away the chaff. And then now, all of a sudden, He starts merging it. Behold, He shall come up as clouds. Okay, we got... We've got imagery going on here. And his chariots, oh, okay, we're not talking about regular wind. We're not talking about a storm here. He's putting some flesh to it. And his chariots shall be as a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe unto us, for we are spoiled. That's, that's Judah's response. And the idea of being spoiled uh, the spoils of war, in other words, we have been ruined, is the idea. And that's Judah's response. So Jeremiah is very clearly laying it out. The weather's going to be changing. There's going to be a storm coming. And this storm is going to be in the form of an enemy nation that is going to come and bring you into captivity. And in verse 14, O Jerusalem, here's the plea now, never too late. O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. Now this isn't saved in the New Testament of the Word. This is delivered, saved from judgment, which is impending with this uh, enemy, the Babylonians coming from the north, King Nebuchadnezzar. So he says, O Jerusalem, wash thine heart from wickedness, that thou mayest be saved. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? He's, he's getting, remember, he's talking about the heart. He's talking about the heart. Wash thine heart from my wickedness. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? It all went down to their heart. This is why God was going to be punishing Israel. Remember all the, all the things we've been talking about in Jeremiah, this picture of a, of a wife that is going a-whoring and, and a you know, that she has forsaken the covenant of her husband, which is God, Jehovah, Yahweh here. Uh, and this is all it. And God is saying, it's all a matter of your heart. Wash your heart from wickedness. How long will your vain thoughts lodge within thee? Something, something's happening in your mind. Jeremiah is saying, God is saying, this whole thing is because of where your heart is. And remember, 
Remember the heart and the mind are intimately connected in Scripture. As he thinketh in his heart, we think in our brain, that's what we think, but the two are intimately connected. As he thinketh in his heart, so is he. So what's going on in your heart? Charles Spurgeon preached a message on this text in verse 14. And he called the text bad lodgers. You know, like somebody renting or taking up residence temporarily. How long shall thy vain thoughts lodge within thee? Bad lodgers and how to treat them. And in his message he explained that evil thoughts were like bad renters or lodgers in a property. And um, so he described why evil thoughts are like bad lodgers. And I, and I want to go over this, just kind of share his thoughts. Because whatever God is doing in your life is probably reflective of what's been going on in your mind. Not in your actions, in your mind. Vain thoughts, number one, vain thoughts are bad lodgers because they are deceitful. Vain thoughts are bad lodgers because they pay no rent. They bring in nothing good. See, when we let thoughts lodge in our mind, bad thoughts, uh, number one, they are deceitful. Number two, they, they, they don't bring any good. Number three, they waste your goods and destroy your property. Just like somebody, just like a bad renter. If you have a property that you're going to rent out and you've got someone that can't be trusted, you know, these things happen. Well, I want you to picture your mind as, you know, an apartment for rent. And there's, there's someone coming in. There's lodgers coming in. Next thing, bad thought, uh, vain thoughts are bad lodgers. Because, uh, because worse than damaging your house, they damage you. Vain thoughts are bad lodgers because they bring you under condemnation. Folks, make no mistake about it. Israel's problem, Judah's problem, was their heart and what was going on in their minds. That was the problem. And God was trying to get hold of their heart. Different time, same people, the Jews. Prophet Ezekiel. Similar situation. And Ezekiel, God says to Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 8, and verse 12, you might remember, Ezekiel had a nickname. God called him Son of Man. That's what Jesus would be called, but this is pre-Jesus. And, and God said to Ezekiel, in Ezekiel 8, 12, he said, Then said he, God unto me, Son of Man, hast thou seen what the ancients of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers of his imagery. So somehow, God was opening up, probably not in a, in a vile, graphic, explicit way, but he was revealing to Ezekiel what was going on in the minds of the Jews. Hast thou seen what the ancients of house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the chambers, the bedrooms of his imagination. What's going on in that chamber of yours? And here's what they said. This is what God said to Ezekiel, Ezekiel 8, 12. For they say, the Lord seeth us not. The Lord hath forsaken the earth. You know, when men and women forget the Lord, they don't have the fear of God, then God is not on all their thoughts. And all of a sudden they go and they allow any lodgers they want. Anybody can take up residence. I want to remind you, Paul's challenge in Corinthians. 
that we have to cast down imaginations and every thought and bring into captivity. Casting down imaginations and every let's see, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God. These are thoughts and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. God is very concerned with with what's going on in our minds. Very concerned. And whatever we allow in our minds is a reflection of our heart. You have bad lodgers, you have bad renters taking place right now. I I can't help but because of our guest this morning uh, and our conversation after, uh, I was reminded, as I often am when, when Brother Hartman comes, um, I've shared this before, but for many years, uh, when we were in the other building especially, when we would have a guest preacher come, a guest missionary, there was a motel just like a couple blocks from our church. It's, I, I believe it's closed. But it was very close to our church. The price was right. And uh, we always, you know, whenever we had a guest speaker, that's where we put them up for years. I mean, I think of, I go back and look at my list of all the missionaries we had. We had, we had Bob Brennan. I mean, we had, we had great men of God come, and we put them up at this motel. I, I won't name it, though it doesn't matter because it's closed. And every time those missionaries came, and I'd ask them, how was your motel? And they said it was fine. Every year, year after year. And then came Brother Hartman. And, uh, and we put him up in that motel. And um, God bless Brother Hartman for being honest. And so after that time, many years ago, I said, so, how was your motel? And he, said, and he looked at me. I think I said it. He was just talking about this this afternoon. I think I said it um, maybe uh, right before he had come. So they spent Saturday night. They came to church. And I said, you know, how was your motel? And I think he said today, he said, um, we'll talk about it after. <laughs> We'll talk about it after. And I come to find out, uh, it, it just, it just, he began to tell me, and he was very honest with me. It was a dive. I mean, it was, it was infested, unclean, torn sheets. I mean, it was just, it was just horrible. And I was horrified. He was laughing because he still remembers my response when he told me about it. And, uh, and I just couldn't believe it. So, you know, I asked him, I said, could you write it down? And he actually wrote me a letter with the specifics of exactly what happened. And I've never been so embarrassed in my life. And then all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute. This place did not become a dive overnight. It didn't. And I'm like, well, what about all these other missionaries? What about all them? And Brother Hartman said, missionaries lie <laughs> so you could quote him on that missionaries lie uh and they do because you know and, and of course mary comes mary comes to the defense of all those missionaries and she said this even today she goes you know maybe the place only became bad you know recently and and those other missionaries did have a good experience but folks i, I began to find out more and more that this place was known as a dive for a while. Like, like a, a motel where not good things happen, uh, a seedy joint. And I, just, I go back and I just cannot believe 
that all those missionaries said to me, it, it's fine, when it wasn't fine. And I praise God, praise God. If, if, if Brother Hartman had never said that, then we'd, well, it's closed now, but we would have been sending people there. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of it is because missionaries are gracious. They don't want to complain. Uh, but you know what? I, I praise God for people like, like Brother Hartman who tell the truth. Now, this is the opposite of this. You know, this is not bad renters, bad lodgers. This is a bad place to lodge. But I submit to you because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in cleansing our mind. And because of the blood of Christ, this place is a good place to lodge for good thoughts. And and God wants us to, to meditate on those things which are true and honest and just and pure and lovely and of good report and of virtuous and praiseworthy. And those are the things that we need to be thinking about. So I want to challenge you, whatever's going on in your mind, don't separate that from what God is doing in your life. So last last part, uh, let's jump down to verse 18 here. Oh, actually, let me back up. Um, o Jerusalem, watch thine heart, verse 15. For a voice declareth from Dan, and publisheth affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make ye mention to the nations, behold, publish against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and give out their voice against the cities of Judah. This is a picture of a, what would be a siege upon a city when a foreign enemy would come in and they'd literally set up uh, besiegers, people that would plant in the fields surrounding a city. Uh, they would literally take residents, set up their tents, and they would take over so they wouldn't let anything go in or out of that city. And they would publish, they would proclaim against the city. Uh, often, this is what would happen before an invading army went in and captured that city. There would be a long siege. And so this is a picture of that time. And the idea of publish against Jerusalem uh, has the idea of, of communicating, uh, proclaiming or announcing. Verse 17, as keepers of the field, are they against her roundabout? Again, this is a picture of the invading armies come and literally just planting like a shepherd in the fields. They've taken over. Um, because she hath been rebellious against me, saith the Lord. So he's tying this in. God's saying, listen, these aren't random, happenstance things. I am bringing chastening into your life. And then now verse 18, as we close, he says, Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. This is thy wickedness, because it is bitter, because it reacheth unto thine heart. You see, when you and I understand that nothing happens in our lives that doesn't first pass through the hands of God, it causes us to step back, whatever's going on in our lives, if it is true that God never moves without purpose or plan when He's involved in our lives, then we have to interpret it that way. We've got to step back and say, All right, Lord, this is happening to me for a reason. That's what caused Job so much frustration. He could not think. He did, Job did major self-examination. I mean, you, you look at his anguish, and he's, he's going through checklists in, that, in his times when he speaks in the book of Job. He's like, okay, if I did this, you know, if I treated somebody and my neighbor unkindly, he's like going through all these checklists. 
Because he, he had a clear conscience that he was walking with God and he couldn't figure it out. And then, of course, he has his friends telling him, come on, Job, fess up. You know, people don't just get trials for nothing. You're not walking with God. But he was walking with God. That's the point. God never moves without purpose or plan. And Job did the right thing, that checklist. He went through his heart. He just searched his heart. Okay, Lord, I don't remember doing this. Don't he went through it all. And praise God, he had a clear conscience because that wasn't what his trial was for. Judah, not so much. Their trial was because of their actions. And they were about ready to go into a long Babylonian captivity. Uh, and pretty soon Jeremiah down the road was going to change his message and get them thinking about the other end, that God has promised blessings. But right now, it hasn't happened yet. The chastening hasn't come. And God in his long suffering is challenging Israel and Judah, please get your heart right with me. That's what he's doing. And I love this verse, verse 18. Thy way and thy doings have procured these things unto thee. Another way of saying that, as we would say it today, you brought this on yourself. Now, that can be harsh, and nobody likes, nobody likes someone telling us, I told you so, right? Uh, but sometimes the Spirit of God tells us that, doesn't he? And sometimes we have to just say, yep, yep, yeah, I brought this on myself. And, and, and again, that right there, just, just saying, okay, Lord, I, I brought this on myself. And then, and then realizing, okay, I, I'm not just going to keep walking the way I was walking. I'm going to get my heart right with God because this is not fun. John Newton, uh, famous, auth, famous pastor, uh, author of Amazing Grace, uh, who lived a wild and, and reckless life until he got saved, uh, Later in life, he made this statement. He said, when people are right with God, they are apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they are not right with God, they're easy on themselves and hard on others. So have you been hard on others, but not on yourself? Clearly, sometimes we bring things upon ourselves. I preached a message some years back called I believe it was called self-induced emergencies. And, you know, there, the Bible says, the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself. You and I, folks, no matter what's going on in our life, we always got to just do soul soul survey. Lord, is this you trying to get my attention for something, or is this just to strengthen my faith? And it's so important that we look at our life that way. I don't know what's going on in your life, um, I, you know, I've been going through trials, uh, the trials of living, which are natural. Uh, but every opportunity, it's like, okay, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're trying to get my attention? I've shared in the past that, um, as I think back on it, that there have been six emergencies, what I would call emergencies in my life. But when I came up with this list, I only came up with five of them. Because I wasn't thinking about the biggest emergency of my life. And I want to close on this. Um, and, and all of these situations I've talked about before. Uh, the first emergency that I remember that I just shared with you last Sunday night, I think. How to Forget Part 2. Uh, when I was a 16-year-old, a month away from being 17. And my best friend at the time went to work with me uh, at, at 
the church I was working at, he fell through a skylight, was in a coma, uh, and, and my friend John Martin's fall. That was my first emergency. Uh, I will never forget that. Second emergency wasn't too long after that during senior week. And I promise you, I was not drinking during senior week. Probably my friend and I were the only ones that weren't drinking in our class. And we got in the car accident. And I'll never forget this. My friend Bill and I are driving down Ocean City, New Jersey, driving through those, those red lights. And all of a sudden, we got T-boned. And the car rolled all the way around, uh, ended up on the sidewalk upside down. And as Bill and I got out, we looked. And it was like this whole crowd was gathered around us. And I felt like I should bow, take a bow, you know. But that was a very scary thing. A little injury, but not much. But that was an emergency. The third one is I was swimming at Virginia Beach. Uh, we went during the off-season, and uh, there was a strong undertow. Uh, that's my third, third emergency where I, f- I felt like that was the closest I ever came to die. The other emergencies were regarding my family. One time, my, uh, not, years ago, my wife hit her head and passed out on the floor. And I was the calm, composed husband who immediately took charge. I freaked out. I freaked out, to be honest. And, uh, and then the, the fifth one, this is the last one I thought, was a couple years ago my, my uh, wife and daughters were going home from church. And um, they were going through an intersection. A lady coming the other way that was high on heroin, side-swiped them and... Um, you know, Mary, it was pretty serious. And that, that was, those were five emergencies where, you know, there was, life was in danger. And as I'm thinking on them, all of a sudden it dawned on me, wait a minute. You know, all five of them were presented as urgent. All five of them, I knew this is a serious situation where my life is at risk. But the, mo- the greatest emergency I've ever had was spiritual. And it was my relationship with the Lord. It was the fact that I needed to get genuinely born again. I needed to get saved. I was religious, but I didn't have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I was not born again. And I was being challenged to be born again. And I came to realize, you know what? That was my biggest crisis moment in my life. Because if I did not take that seriously and consider my relationship with God... I would have eased through the rest of my life thinking everything was fine, not realizing the crisis I was in, and I would have died and gone to hell. And you know what? The people of Judah, they were in a crisis, and they didn't even know it. Praise God for Jeremiah. He was their last-ditch effort. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Jeremiahs of the world, the people that love us enough, to give us truth, to preach to us uh, what sometimes is not popular or what may not be the uh, prevailing philosophy of the day. Uh, Father, for example, the the need to be born again uh, is just not embraced by so many people. Uh, Though Jesus articulated it so clearly, though Jesus made it clear that wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat, and narrow is the way, and uh, you know, straight is the gate, narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Uh, there's not many people that understand they are in a spiritual crisis. And Lord, I pray that just as you attempted to wake up Judah and the Jews to their 
perilous spiritual condition so you would wake up multitudes of people who have yet to be born again. And may they see the danger, how, though it may not be urgent as far as the situation, it is, it is a serious emergency and they need to be born again. So Lord, I pray you'd open up hearts and minds to the Savior and help us to take heed. You are in charge and we thank you for it. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.